0: Welcome to Understanding Christianity. Thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Well, I want to give a recap of my experience at the Southern Baptist Convention Annual Meeting 2022 in Anaheim, California. Uh, I'll just give you kind of the big picture first. I was uh, disappointed, I was frustrated, and I was embarrassed. And so let me go into a little bit more detail as far as what I understand happened and from my perspective, and uh, just to kind of give you my thoughts. Um, one of the big issues going into the convention was the Sex Abuse Task Force Report, Um I don't want to go into a lot of detailed background on this because hopefully if you're listening to this, you have some understanding of what's been going on in the SBC. But basically, last year, the messengers at the 2021 convention in Nashville called for a sex abuse task force to be able to investigate the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention and to basically respond to a Houston Chronicle article that came out a few years ago describing a lot of about 700 different cases of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches. And the the big issue was that pastors and youth pastors and leaders were jumping from church to church and um, committing atrocious acts of sexual predatory um, things of that type of nature, and those churches weren't reporting them, and so it was kind of a debacle. And so it is an issue. It is something that is grievous, uh, sex abuse is sinful it's criminal and and churches if a, if it happens in a church the authorities need to be contacted immediately this is something that needs to be taken care of by the civil magistrate the police A crime has been committed, and it also needs to be taken care of in a church discipline issue through the the membership to be able to discipline those that commit sins and crimes. And so there's a lot of issues related to sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches. The issue becomes, we are a huge denomination of about 47,000 churches with an executive committee that basically operates basically at interim, the, the other days of the year when the Southern Baptist Convention is not in session, which is basically two, two days out of the year in June of each year. And so there was some cover-ups and there were some other things related to this and that, and um, you can go back and, and read the sex abuse task refor- report. The problem that I have is that the company that the executive committee used to do this investigation was called Guidepost Solutions. Now, Guidepost Solutions is a secular company that specializes in this type of investigation. The problem is, is that they are very much focused on an LGBTQ intersectionality, critical theory, type of Me Too movement mentality. And so, without going into a lot of detail, I just basically felt like the entire task force report from Guidepost was tainted by a worldly ideology. I don't think that they did a great job as they could have in investigating. I think it was biased in a lot of ways, and I think it was colored by a worldview that's in direct opposition to who we are as Southern Baptists. And so like just days before the convention, because June is Pride Month, Guidepost Solutions came out with a tweet celebrating Pride Month, and everybody was shocked, and everybody was upset, and and how did we know about this and all this kind of stuff? And I I pretty much thought that we knew that this company was was pretty much pro-LGBTQ. And so when the issue came to vote on the two recommendations, there were two recommendations that came forward um, from the task force. One was to create another task force to look into the findings and to basically spend the next year going over a lot of things and coming back next year with some more recommendations. So basically it was to create another task force to to implement, an implementation task force, to implement these changes. And that would be appointed by the new president, Bart Barber. And so there's going to be a creation of a new task force that's going to look over all this information and try to continue to figure out the best way to to move forward. The other recommendation was to create a database or a website of those that had been either convicted or those that had been, and this is the, the language I had a problem with, credibly charged with crimes. Now, this database, I'm not opposed to necessarily having a centralized database that would help Southern Baptists know, you know, from church to church if somebody's on this database. But I think that the way they set up the database is it can be abused for um, a lack of due process. Um, I, I, I just don't understand why they would go the route they did by not creating a better framework for due process for those that were not credibly accused or somebody that's falsely accused. And so when it came time to vote, I actually abstained. I didn't vote yes. I didn't vote no. I was conflicted in my heart as to which way to go. And so I felt like the best thing to do would just be to abstain. Because I do think there needs to be some type of action taken on sexual abuse within our convention. I think mainly it needs to happen at the local church level, but there is ways that our denomination can help churches, can be a resource to churches, can help them with best practices. But I also struggle with the database because of the issue related to the third party. Uh, Who's going to keep this database? Is it going to be guidepost solutions? Are we creating another entity? Are we creating um, more bureaucracy at the SBC level. Why do we need a database? Um, You know, you have sex offender registries in your local area. Uh, You can partner with law enforcement. I know here at our church, we have a lot of people in law enforcement. And so if we have a question, we just ask those people and they can look that up very quickly and find those things out. And so, I just think that the, the database, I'm uncomfortable with it because I think there's possibility for it to be abused and to have people on there that may not be fully um, guilty but may have just been falsely accused. And so I don't know if it creates the due process that the Bible speaks about. And so that was the big issue going in. And, and, and of course, it, it, it passed overwhelmingly. Um, the messengers you know, approved those two motions. And so uh, you can kind of go to thefederalist.com. Uh, uh, there's a good article there called "Southern Baptists Shouldn't Write Blank Checks for SBC Leaders on Sex Abuse." Um, it came out on June 13. Uh, Megan Basham of the Daily Wire has written a very good article where she basically goes into a little bit more depth. Some some things that weren't reported by the guidepost solutions. Uh, Hers is called Southern Baptist Me Too Moment. Um, This was from the Daily Wire website, June 14th. Megan Basham is a Christian. She writes for Daily Wire. She's a great reporter. Uh, She gives some pretty good insight into that. So you can go read that as well. But the, the big issue of the day was the credentials committee dealing with Saddleback Church and the ordination of women. And so basically what happened was last year, Saddleback Church, which is an SBC church, I don't know if a lot of people know that, but they are a Southern Baptist church. They blatantly, flagrantly, out in the open, celebrated the ordination of three women to pastoral ministry. Now, this is in direct violation not only of Scripture, but also of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And so they have violated both scripture and they have violated our statement of faith. And so as a cooperating Southern Baptist Church, somebody made a motion last year by, uh, her name was Shad Tibbs of Louisiana, last year's annual meeting in Nashville. Basically, the recommendation was to disfellowship Saddleback, and so this year it had to take a year before you could you had to bring it back so the credentials committee brought a recommendation to the floor and basically their recommendation was not to disfellowship saddleback and here was the reason why so here was the uh, statement from the credentials committee and they basically gave the report said it is the unanimous opinion of the Credentials Committee, that the majority of Southern Baptists hold to the belief that the function of lead pastor, elder, bishop, or overseer is limited to men as qualified by Scripture, and that this was the intended definition of the office of pastor as stated in Article 6 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The Credentials Committee has found little information evidencing the convention's beliefs regarding the use of the title of pastor for staff positions with different responsibility and authority than that of the lead pastor. And so basically what the argument was is that basically what they're saying, and this is what we had to deal with last year at the Colorado convention, the the resolution that I actually uh, drafted and brought up was this whole movement that says just the lead pastor is a male. But if you're an associate pastor or a youth pastor or a teaching pastor or a missions pastor, that can be a woman because you're not the lead pastor. And so the issue is is the lead pastor only a male? What about other staff members? Well, here's the problem with this. The problem with this is that the Bible does not make a distinction between a lead pastor and an associate pastor. As a matter of fact, when you go to the scriptures, there's one word. Actually, there's multiple words. There's episkopos, which means overseer. There's presbyteros, which means elder. And and there's no adjective before that delineating whether it's the lead or senior pastor. And so the argument went from the credentials committee was... Listen, we're not going we're we're to have a study committee to study the title of pastor because we really need to understand what pastor is. And so the recommendation was we're not going to disfellowship Saddleback, who actually broke or violated the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Instead of disfellowshipping them, we're going to create a study committee to study the title of pastor. Well, this opens up a can of worms. And so at this point, it's probably best to play what Dr. Moeller, Dr. Al Moeller stood up. He was on the original draft committee of the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message that, that drafted that. So he gave his assessment as far as what the original intent of the authors of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is. And so let's listen to Dr. Moeller on the floor of the convention make his statement.
1: Mr. Chairman, I just come to this microphone in the event that it is in order for me to speak. I'm speaking as a messenger of the Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I served on the committee that brought the Baptist faith and message in 2000 that was overwhelmingly adopted by this convention. My concern is as a churchman, a theologian, and uh, someone who loves this convention, as I know everyone in this room does. If we eventually have to form a study committee over every word in our confession of faith, then we're doomed, and we're no longer a confessional people.
2: <laughs> Dr. Moeller, Dr. Moeller, would you, your, your microphone number five, I recognize you again to continue speaking to this. Thank
1: you, sir. I certainly want to be in order yes, with sir. the rest of this convention. Yes. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll I'll make this brief. I also appreciate the good work of the Credentials Committee and the spirit in which they bring this. But I am a confessionalist. This is a confessional denomination. We say what we believe in specific words that are the Baptist faith and message. The moment we start to, of necessity, have study committees to decide what the words mean, The words mean what Southern Baptists said in the year 2000. At that time, the word pastor was used by the committee and adopted by the convention because we were told that is the most easily understood word among Southern Baptists for pastoral teaching leadership. I have to hope we still have that much clarity and that churches that use the word pastor mean it. Mr. Chairman, thank you for this opportunity. Dr. Moeller, I understand totally. I, to me, I know what pastor means, but in some of our Southern Baptist churches, pastor is a spiritual gift that is given to many people. So, we, ladies, have, we wanted clarity Excuse me. Excuse me. in what that pastor means.
2: With all do, ladies and gentlemen, with all due respect, that is not how we do our business.
0: Okay, so at this point, Adam Greenway... President of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Dallas, in Fort Worth stands up and says, I want to make an amendment to this motion. Let's just take the whole issue of women and ministry out of the equation, and let's actually just have it be related to cooperating churches. Let's let's broaden the tent and let's have a study committee to see what is a cooperating church. And so let's take women in ministry, the role of pastor out. Of it and let's widen it and say let let's let's find out what is a cooperating Southern Baptist church. Well, what he did at that point was basically just open the door, widen the tent. And so at that point, that amendment was on. Basically, needed to be voted on. Well, we ran out of time and had to go to lunch. And then when we came back after lunch, the Credentials Committee was going to reconvene, and we had to vote upon Adam Greenway's amendment. Well, what happened in the meantime was that Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, was somehow contacted, and he was allowed six and a half minutes at a mic to be able to obloviate about all of his accomplishments. And what he did was shameful, was disgraceful, and I don't know why in the world Ed Litton allowed him to speak. And so this is a six-minute clip, but I think it's very telling. I want you to hear what Rick Warren said to defend himself. And I'll just preempt this. Basically, it's a passive-aggressive swipe at the denomination, basically saying, hey, I'm the largest Southern Baptist church, look at all the great things I've done, how dare you even think about decredentialing us? We are the biggest, we're the best, and so let's not worry about secondary issues, let's just focus on doing what we do with Southern Baptists to keep the main thing the main thing. So I'll let you listen to the six minute clip from Rick Warren.
2: You know, um, first, everybody welcome to Orange County. Southern Baptist of 149 Southern Baptist churches here, 90 of them started by Saddleback Church. You know, it's customary um, for a a guy who's about to be hung to let him say his dying words. (laughs) I have no intention of defending myself. I have taught my kids and grandkids for years. I am most like Christ when I refuse to defend myself. The Bible says Jesus spoke not a word unto them when Pilate accused him of all kinds of things. So I have no intention. Uh, I have most of you on my mailing list anyway, and I can write you and tell you what I believe about the gift of pastoring as opposite from the office of pastoring. But I'm not here to talk about that. Lunchtime, I wrote you a love letter and I'd like for my possibly likely last convention to read it to you. Kay and I could have not built Saddleback Church to its size and influence in any other denomination. I love Southern Baptist. I am a fourth generation Southern Baptist pastor. My great grandfather was led to Christ by Charles Spurgeon and sent to America as a church planter. Saddleback was sponsored by the North American Mission Board. I served on the staff of the California State Convention and the Texas State Convention as a teenager. Billy Graham picked me up when I was 18, and for the next 52 years, mentored me, because I started at 16 years old, hired by the California Convention to preach youth revivals. And I had preached preached over over 120 uh, Harvest Crusades before I was 20. Billy took this long-haired, skinny Californian and mentored me for the next 52 years. Here's my love letter to you, because I really am grateful, if this is my last convention. Because of Southern Baptist polity, I was allowed to serve one church for life. That's not possible in those denominations. And, get, and grew it to become the largest church in this convention. Because Southern Baptist gave me a passion for evangelism and mission, we baptized 56,631 new believers. And as a Southern Baptist Church sent 26,869 members overseas to 197 nations. Because Southern Baptist taught me the value of a membership covenant, 78,157 members of our church signed our membership covenant after taking a four-hour membership class. Because Southern Baptist taught me to emphasize the priority of Bible study. We now have 9,173 home Bible studies in homes in 162 Southern California cities. Because Southern Baptist taught me the value of church planting, As I already mentioned, we planted 90 in Orange County alone and literally thousands around the world. Because Southern Baptist taught me to honor and love the local church, I've had the privilege for 43 years of training 1.1 million pastors. That Sorry friends, that's more than all the seminaries put together. I owe you all so much, so I sincerely say thank you Southern Baptist for shaping my life. And You're never going to find another Baptist who agrees with you completely on everything. There are Baptist brothers here today who don't believe Jesus died for the whole world. But we imagine — somehow get along with them. So as Western culture grows more dark, more evil, more secular, we have to decide, are we going to treat each other as allies or adversaries? Second, since this is the year 2022, that means we are 2022 years from the birth of Christ. Now we know Christ started his ministry at 30 years of age, Luke tells us that, had a three and a half year ministry. Christ died in AD 33, he was resurrected in AD 33, he gave the Great Commission in AD 33, He sent the Holy Spirit and started the church in AD 33. That means 2033, just 11 years from today, is the 2000th anniversary of the Great Commission. I hope one of you, because I won't be here next year, will make a resolution that Baptists take the next 10 years to finish the task of the Great Commission in our generation before the two-thousandth anniversary of the church. Are we gonna keep bickering over secondary issues? Are we gonna keep the main thing the main thing? We need to finish the task and that will make God smile. Thank you everybody. I love you.
0: The sad thing about it was that he got a standing ovation. And that people were just gushing over what he had to say. And so let's talk about this issue of lead pastor, secondary issues. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. So let's just go to the scriptures. Because I want to address this head on. Because there seems to be a lot of confusion in our denomination over what the Bible says. Let's take the Baptist faith and message out of the equation for just a moment. Okay, the Baptist faith and message does say the office of pastor is limited to qualified men. It doesn't say the office of lead pastor. It doesn't say the office of senior pastor. It says the office of pastor. No qualifications. It's very clear, very specific. And it is our, I don't want to call it a confession of faith because it's not really a confession, but it's a statement of faith that unites cooperating Southern Baptists together so we can do missions, we can do church planning, we can do theology, we can do seminary, we can do things together with a unified set of beliefs that we all hopefully understand. But let's set that aside right now and go to the scriptures. So if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and beca- became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and with self-control. Okay, so let's let's discuss this, this passage of Scripture. Three questions especially of verse 12 that we need to ask. Number one, what does the verb permit? When Paul says, I do not permit, what does that mean? Second question, what does it mean? Paul does not permit a woman to teach. What does it mean to teach? And then third question, what does it mean to have authority? So let's look at these and and ask some questions. Number one, the word permit. Is Paul speaking of his opinion or is he speaking as an apostle on God's authority? If this is inspired scripture and it is in the text, it is God's ultimate authority. Now, some have tried to explain this word permit by saying it was Paul's personal opinion. It was not binding. It was something that could be followed or not. Others argue that since it's in the present tense, it means that Paul was, was only dealing with a specific point in time in Ephesus but that it did not have a universal or binding principle for all time it was just geared towards that culture i find both these interpretations weak because oftentimes paul will use present tense verbs in his texts to command or to give instructions and are we supposed to say that well that was only apl- applicable to those back then and so that that's kind of a weak that's kind of a, a weak gr- gr- uh, argument from grammar Also, the whole point of personal opinion, where do you draw the line between personal opinion and inspired scripture? When when does Paul stop speaking authoritatively with with the inspired text and then give his opinion? So I think the word permit is a binding issue related to his apostolic authority, and it's in written scripture. So when Paul says, I do not permit something, this is God speaking through Paul in written scripture, binding upon the church. Okay. Second question What does it mean to teach? Is a woman restricted from all forms of teaching in the church or only teaching men? Well, obviously, no, because Titus tells us that the older women are to teach and to mentor the younger women. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so to train the young women. To love their husbands and children now what some have tried to do with this word teaches they're basically saying what paul is doing is prohibiting women from teaching heresy or false doctrine that's what he's forbidding but he's not forbidding women to teach men if they teach sound theology so basically, what they've done is they, they've kind of, kind of put some qualifiers in there to say what Paul is really addressing is women who teach false doctrine. He's not allowing them to teach false doctrine. But they can teach men as long as they're teaching sound doctrine. Now, that's not in the text. What, what, what we need to understand is that in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, the word teach, that Greek word teach, almost always carries the idea of the authoritative doctrinal teaching done by elders slash pastors. Okay. If we just got our terminology correct, we, we, we understand the word elder to be the same as pastor. So pastor, bishop, overseer, elder, that's all the same function and it's all the same office so probably the best way to do it would be in today's parlance would be to call somebody a pastor-elder or an elder-pastor and, and leave the whole lead or senior or associate out because that's not in the Scriptures. One of the qualifications for a, an, an overseer, an elder, a pastor, 1 Timothy 3.2, Therefore, an overseer. Now that word is episkopos, an overseer. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach. Able to teach. First Timothy 4, 11-13, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul is commanding Timothy as the pastor... As to what his function is, his function is to publicly read the scripture to exhortation, which is preaching, and to teaching, the authoritative instruction of the pastor. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders, and there's the word presbyteros, and it's in the plural there, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So teaching and preaching is always tied to the role and function of an elder, to a pastor, to an overseer. Second Timothy 4.2, Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, Paul is addressing Timothy as the pastor. Then you go to Titus chapter 1 verse 9, and it talks about the The responsibility of an elder that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So from the contextual evidence of how the word teaching shows up in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, how that word teaching shows up, It's one of the primary roles of an elder. So it's safe to conclude that when Paul does not permit a woman to teach, in effect, this means any type of doctrinal or theological teaching in the church context over men. That she should not function in the office of an elder slash pastor. She should not be a pastor. She should not even preach or teach when men are present. Okay, third question, what does it mean to have authority? Now, the word have authority is not the normal word Paul uses for authority. It's only used here in the New Testament, and so it's what we call a hapax It means it's a one-time-use word, and so sometimes when you have these one-time words that Paul uses, it can create a little bit of lexical confusion. Um, the, in, the updated NIV, the New International Version, 2011, it, it's kind of softened the translation It basically says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Assume authority. Now, this updated translation assumption means that a woman can't usurp or take the authority away from a man, but and this is the argument that you're hearing a lot in Southern Baptist churches, if she is under the authority of the elders or if the lead pastor gives her authority, she can preach or teach if she comes under the authority of the lead-slash-senior pastor. Now, Mounts, who is a Greek scholar, New Testament scholar, he has written a very good commentary on First Timothy Let's hear what Mounts has to say about this. Quote The question of the meaning of the word authority is not insignificant. If it means to exercise authority, then Paul is prohibiting any type of authoritative teaching that places a woman over a man. If it means to domineer in a negative sense, then it is prohibiting a certain type of authoritative teaching, one that is administered in a negative, domineering, coercive way, thus leaving the door open for women to exercise teaching authority in a proper way over men. The parallel of the Greek word have authority combined with the Greek word for teaching suggests that it is a positive term. It seems doubtful that Paul would prohibit only women and not men from teaching in a coercive way especially since the text only names male opponents. Okay, so here's the he's addressing an argument that some in modern scholarship have had. Basically, Mount says the first definition is probably the best way to take it. It means that Paul is prohibiting any type of authoritative teaching that places a woman over a man. Others would say, no, what Paul's saying is that a woman can't be abusive in her teaching. She can teach men as long as she's not coercive, as long as she's not domineering, as long as she has an attitude of submissiveness, she can still teach. And his argument is, well, then why doesn't Paul give that as instructions to men as well? Can men teach in domineering ways? Can men teach in coercive ways? But women can't. So I take the first interpretation that Mounts does, that Paul is basically telling women that they cannot teach or have authority over men. Now, let's get to another question, because there's the the lexical material, the exegetical discussion here. The big question that is raised today is, does this verse apply today? Does it have a universal application to all churches at all times, regardless of culture? Or was this only for the Ephesian church during Paul's day where he was addressing a specific problem? In other words, was this instruction just given to Paul and Timothy in the Ephesus, the church in Ephesus? Or is this a binding command all time? Now, the entire New Testament is written to address specific issues that were going on in local churches. Okay, so that's, it's, it's called the occasion of the letter. I mean, Galatians, the issue was the Judaizers coming in and causing problems by requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised. That was one of the reasons that Paul wrote the letter. You've got the book of Philippians, where two ladies were not getting along, and Paul's writing from prison, and he, he's addressing a specific issue. So yes, a lot of Paul's Writings have specific issues that he's addressing, but that doesn't mean that those issues were only applicable to them and not have a wider universal application to us in all times. So, Paul does not indicate anywhere in this passage that this only applies here. Now, how do I know that? Because he actually roots his teaching back in the story of the creation and the fall. Why does... Paul bring up Adam and Eve. Right after this, he says, Adam was formed first and Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. He takes us right back to God's order in creation, even before the fall. So in the order of creation, Adam was formed first to show that he had headship over his wife. Eve being created second does not mean that she's a second-class citizen, obviously, equal, but within the roles of husband and wife, the woman is to joyfully submit to her husband's leadership. So if a woman teaches or has authority over a man, she is in fact not submitting to the leadership roles that God has instituted not only in the home, but in the church. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, when Paul uses the event of Eve being deceived, basically it means that Adam passively listened to her and ate the forbidden fruit. Adam did not take the spiritual role seriously of being the leader and protecting her from the serpent. And so the analogy is that men are more susceptible to error and false teaching and division in the church when they carelessly surrender the teaching and leadership responsibilities to women. So, what's the conclusion? The prohibitions given by Paul here are valid for Christians in all places and times. Therefore, in order for churches to be faithful to Scripture... We must obey this command and not allow women to teach men nor to have any positions of pastoral or authority over men. And so the issue is, are we going to follow what the Scripture says and get rid of this whole nonsense of putting an adjective in front of pastor, lead pastor, senior pastor, associate pastor, because it's opening the door to allow women to have teaching functions and pastoral functions in the church. Now, thankfully, what ended up happening was the Committee on Nomination, or the Committee on um, um, Credentials, the Credentials Committee, basically came in and withdrew their recommendation and said, hey, we're not going to do anything, actually. (laughs) We're just going to kick this down the curb. And so it was kind of a, number one, it was a cowardly move by the Credentials Committee to not disfellowship Saddleback they should have done that emphatically and said, listen, we're going to snip this thing in the bud once and for all. If you're a church that ordains women, you're not in fellowship. We don't need to have a study committee. We don't need to understand what the Baptist faith and message says. It's not ambiguous, but more importantly, the scriptures are very clear. And so that issue was kicked down the curb, and and it really just um, brought up the issue of widening the tent. Last year, the main mantra that you heard was, the world is watching. The world is watching. This year, when you follow Twitter, when you look at people's comments, when, when you kind of follow the ins and outs, one of the subtle things that people were saying was, well, we need to make the tent wider. We can do better if, we're, if we've got more people involved. We can, we can fulfill the mission of church planning and reaching the nations if we, have, if we broaden the tent. So let's, I'm okay with broadening the tent. Well, what does that mean, to broaden the tent? Does that mean that we begin to allow women to be pastors? Is that broadening the tent? Because I think that's what some in the SBC want to have happen. They would have no problem with female pastors teaching and preaching on the Lord's Day. They're a matter of fact, they're, they're kind of embarrassed that we have a, a standpoint in our doctrinal statement that prevents women from holding the position of pastor. And so I think you're going to be seeing this whole movement to widen the tent. Let's make this issue. Why are we arguing about secondary issues? Well, let's talk about that. Why are we arguing about secondary issues? Just because an issue is secondary does not mean that it's vitally important. Now, let me just describe to you how we approach this at our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Sterling, Colorado. We have what's called dogma, doctrines, and preferences. Dogma are those absolute essentials that one must believe in order to be an orthodox, historic Christian. If you deviate from any of the dogma, you are no longer a Christian. You're moving into heresy, you're moving into false teaching. These would be things like the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The reality of heaven and hell. The the second coming, the finality of judgment. Those absolute essentials that have bound Christians together for centuries that are the absolute dogma of what we must believe. Now, the next level is doctrines. Now, these are secondary issues, and this is why we have denominations. This is why we have different types of churches, because we do understand doctrines differently. This could be mode of baptism. Do you sprinkle infants, or do you baptize adult believers who've made a credible profession of faith? Do you believe in the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues and miracles? Are you a continuationist, or are you a cessationist? Do you believe in eternal security, that you can lose your salvation or walk away from salvation, or that you're eternally secure and you can't lose your salvation? Those are some issues related to secondary matters. In times positions, are you a dispensationalist, are you a pre-trib rapture person, are you amillennial? Those are very vital issues that are important in the life of a church. And so, yes, the issue of women pastors, women teaching men, it is a secondary issue, It's not a dogma. It's not something that's going to affect your eternal salvation. But it is vitally important if churches are going to cooperate together for mission and for theological education. And here's why it's so important that we hold to this. This is a trickle-down issue. I want to know, as a Southern Baptist church, that if I'm sending my money to a Southern Baptist seminary, that that seminary is teaching their young pastors that when they go out and pastor churches, the role and function of pastor is relegated to men. I want to know if I'm giving my money to plant churches overseas through the International Mission Board, that we are planting churches that have men as pastors. If we're going to be planting churches here in North America, I want to know that my money is being being used to plant churches with only male pastors. And so, yes, it's a secondary issue, but it's also a stewardship issue. How do we steward our money through the cooperative program to be able to make sure that we're like-minded when we go out on the mission? Here's one of the things that frustrates me that you're hearing a lot. It's all about the mission. The mission The mission is more important than theology. Let's keep the main thing the main thing, and let's not worry about secondary issues. Here's the problem with that statement. How do you define and clarify and have unity over the mission if you don't know the theology behind what you're doing? You see, theology comes first. Theology is what unites us first and foremost to accomplish the mission. I said this to one of my pastor friends as we were talking about the things related to the convention. I said, here's a very, three very important questions and if we can't answer these questions, we're in a major world of trouble. First question What is the gospel? Second question, what is the church? Third question, what is the mission? If we can't have unity on what is a Christian, what is the gospel, what is the church, what's the mission, if we can't answer those, then we're going to go all over the map as far as what we do. And so, yes, we can give lip service to the mission being the Great Commission, but what type of church are you planting? What type of elder are you placing in leadership at your church? What type of gospel are you preaching? What type of church are you building? One of the SBC elite persons. I won't mention names in this, but his Twitter, and it was followed a lot. A lot of people liked it, and seminary presidents liked it. He says, I'm happy to partner with leaders and churches that see some things differently than I do. I might not ever join their church, but I'm in favor of a more generous reading of the Baptist faith and message and a bigger Baptist tent for purposes of fellowship and partnership. There it is. Now, if I were to tell you this person's name, you would know who he is. He's a famous Southern Baptist, and a lot of people retweeted it, and a lot of people are saying the same thing. I'm in favor of a more generous reading of the Baptist faith and message and a bigger Baptist tent for purposes of fellowship and partnership. Now, what is a? let me just ask some questions. What constitutes a more generous reading of the Baptist faith and message? Either the document has a meaning or the document doesn't. This is very postmodern in its understanding. It's like the whole issue of, well, you know, is it a living constitution or is it a document that was framed by our our founders that has a meaning that that lasts today? What is a more generous reading of the Baptist faith and message? Does that mean you can kind of make it up? Does that mean there's not any consensus? And, And what does a bigger Baptist tent look like for the purposes of fellowship and partnership? Now, let me just say something. I pray almost every Wednesday with, Six other pastors in our area. I pray with the pastor of First Baptist Church, which is an American Baptist church. Pastor of the, I pray with the pastor of the Foursquare Church, which is more charismatic. Pastor of the Berean Church, which is more like a Bible church, dispensationalist. I pray with the pastor of the Nazarene Church, which is definitely different in theology. The pastor of the Assembly of God Church and the pastor of an evangelical free church. We pray weekly. We have fellowship. I love these men. We've prayed together for years. We have great fellowship. Sometimes we've done some joint worship services together in our community where everybody gets together to worship for a night of praise. But that's the extent to which I'm going to get involved with them. You see, I, can't, I can fellowship with them. I can pray with them, but I cannot partner with them. I can't partner to plan a church. I cannot partner to do missions because our theology is just too divergent. It's too wide. And what I'm hearing from Southern Baptists is, let's just throw theology and our distinctives out the window and let's make the tent wide so that we can do a better job of reaching the nations. But the question is, what are you reaching the nations with? Is it a diluted theology? Is it a watered-down version of what a church is? Is it taking away the, the essentials of what it means to be a pastor? And so that was a huge issue. Now, one of the issues that was also came up was that somebody asked for the North American Mission Board to be audited because there's a lot of issues with the North American Mission Board as far as they have all this money and all these resources and and it's almost like it's the slush fund for the Southern Baptist Convention. and, And so they denied any type of audit, forensic audit of the North American Mission Board. So again, Entities not being held accountable, basically, you know, messengers not being allowed to ask questions, things like that. One of the things that bothered me was that the executive committee also fired its old um, legal counsel, it's old attorneys, the the, the Southern Baptist attorneys we've had for years because they felt like they were part of the problem with the sex abuse task force and and all that type of stuff. So they needed to to fire the old attorneys that the Southern Baptist Convention has had for years and they hired this new group, this new law firm. And this new law firm does embrace gay pride. It is an LGBT-friendly law firm. And I have problems with that because it seems like every time we turn around, we are partnering with firms that do not have the same worldview that we have as Southern Baptists. Now I know you have to have secular entities to work for. You've got to have legal counsel. You've got to have attorneys. You've got to have um, you know consultants and things like that that that, that are secular. But you, you have to tell me that of all of the law firms and all of the um, investigative committees and investigative companies that are out there, you can't find some that have Judeo-Christian values that align more readily with Southern Baptists. Why in the world do we need to have our new lawyers be LGBT friendly. And, and, and one of the ladies that was the, the lawyer, obviously she's not in favor of that, but she stood up and talked about how she wants to be salt and light in her workplace. And that's fine. Yeah, we want you to be salt and light in your workplace. Yeah, we know a lot of Southern Baptists work in secular places and we want to be salt and light, but that's not the question. That's not the issue. The issue is not should you be salt and light in your workplace? The issue is should the Southern Baptist Convention make a partnership to have legal counsel with a firm that is LGBT affirming. And see, here's the fruit. When you have the past president, J.D. Greer, and the in the in the second past, well, J.D. Greer and then Ed Litton both say publicly the Bible whispers about homosexual sin, when you start saying that over and over again, that type of mentality seeps into the thought process of the decision making at the highest level. One of the big issues also was there was a motion to defund the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I saw people that thought this was a hostile resolution, a hostile motion, I didn't at all. We, we haven't funded the ERLC since 2019. I think they should be abolished. I, I see no reason for them. They've caused more conflict. They've caused more confusion. They do not speak on behalf of most Southern Baptists. As a matter of fact, they've done things that are against the will of the messengers. I think it needs to be abolished. It needs to be defunded. I think the SBC would be a whole lot better shape if they just got rid of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, but that did not pass, obviously. And then all the conservative candidates lost which was not a huge surprise. Uh, Vody Bauckham did not win, president of the Pastors Conference, Tom Askell did not win in the runoff. As a matter of fact, it was like 62% to 38% that he lost to Bart Barber. And so none of the candidates that I voted for um, got elected. And one of the issues related to that is um, location, location. I think the turnout was lower because it was in Anaheim, California. I mean, let's just face it. With gas prices as high as they are, with airline tickets as high as they are, with hotel costs as high as they are, food costs, it it costs a lot of money for your average Southern Baptist to travel to Anaheim. And so because it was so far west and because it was so expensive, I think you had less of a turnout than if it would have been like in Nashville or in Dallas or in Atlanta or someplace that's like in the south or the the southeast. Now, next year it's in New Orleans, and I think the turnout will be better. But I just think that when you look around, you have a lot of NAM church planners. You have a lot of denominational employees. You have a lot of people that are part of the system there, voting to keep the system in place. And so your average church member that drives or flies miles to come, this was the most frustrating thing. The the average Southern Baptist who paid for it on their own dime to come and to be heard, the platform did not really allow dissenting voices to be heard. They were stifled, sometimes mics were shut off, Conversation was killed, but yet those that were on the side of the platform were allowed to stand up and to bloviate and to talk as long as they wanted to and say whatever they wanted to. And there was no point of order to tell them that they needed to stop. And so there was just a lot of inconsistencies in the way that the platform treated the average Southern Baptist. And so the question asked, like, why do you even go? I mean, why go subject yourself to that? Why go to a convention where you're spending all this money and you're in a big room and you're not going to be heard? I mean, I, I, I talked to a few pastors afterwards, um, not even from my own state, but guys that you know I have connections with. One guy was a podcast listener. He came up and talked to him for a long time. And I can't tell you how many pastors were frustrated that they didn't feel like they had a voice or would be heard and, and wondered why they spent all this money to come across to, to Anaheim. And most of them came to vote for Tom Askell, and obviously that didn't happen. The biggest issue, I think that's facing the Southern Baptist Convention is the issue of pragmatism. I think there's a progressive liberal drift. There's a drift. I don't think it's full-blown liberal. I think there are some within the convention that would like to see it go that way. But I think the vast majority of Southern Baptist churches are not liberal. And sadly, those vast majority of Southern Baptist churches don't send messengers. They just kind of trust the system. They trust their leaders. Ignorance is bliss. They continue giving money to the cooperative program because they, they all this time they've trusted the leadership. But there is this root of pragmatism that infects everything that we do. And so I want to read a Twitter thread I thought was really good from uh, a man named Corey Taylor. I I like his Twitter thread because I think it sums up a lot of what I've been thinking. So uh, this is Corey Taylor's Twitter thread. This was from um, June 17th. He wrote this. I'll just read the, the thread. It is fairly obvious to many that the SBC is becoming more and more worldly in their approach to things. Unlike some, I don't think that drift is happening because of liberalism. I think the parties involved genuinely believe that they are conservative. That's why they so often respond to charges by pointing to orthodox positions that they believe. The true issues underlying all of this is pragmatism. That's why the first thing that is said about conflict isn't, what does the Bible say, but instead, the world is watching. It's why someone like Rick Warren, whose purpose driven, seeker sensitive approach has done untold damage in the modern church by filling the deep end of the Christianity pool with cement to make everything seem shallow, is given a platform to lionize himself at the annual meeting, even as he's literally being accused rightly of being out of alignment with the Baptist faith and message. Even when they disagree theologically, the pragmatics see him as a model rather than a warning. That's why SBC Twitter is filled with praises for him, even though we, quote-unquote, disagree. The SBC is in trouble because it's filled with pragmatic men who are willing to veer from sound practice for the sake of relevancy, which they call, quote, reaching the lost. And when conflict arises, they, the gut reaction is not returning to Scripture, it's widening the tent. We've been so focused on numerical growth that we've neglected spiritual growth which is partly because it's hard to quantify that in order to boast about it at annual meetings. But it's also because big numbers lead to big giving. Again, pragmatism. I love the SBC. I was saved in an SBC church. I was educated in an SBC seminary. I currently serve as an elder in an SBC church. But I'm not blind to the SBC's problems. And I see huge issues on the horizon because we are more pragmatic than we are biblical. There are those who strenuously deny that there is a drift in the SBC, And they are wrong. It is not a liberal drift, but it's a pragmatic and worldly one for sure. And I fear that we're fast approaching the point where we'll be too far gone to stop the inevitable collapse. To use an analogy, if you're on an unmoored boat and your eyes are always on the horizon, quote unquote, the world is watching, you're not going to realize how far from shore you are. Incremental steps like allowing women to preach, denying that same-sex attraction is a sin, etc. are all evidences of this. I'm nobody particularly in an SBC filled with men climbing over one another to ascend to the upper echelons of the SBC, and I'm totally content with that. I have no aspirations beyond leading my own flock well, but I do hope that more men in the SBC will join me in that. I pray that we've set our eyes on the word more than the world, on the shoreline, if you will, and endeavor to follow Christ in accordance with the Bible rather than adapt to the culture. In an SBC marked by pragmatism, let's stand on the word together. I thought that was a great word, a great Twitter thread by a man named Corey Taylor. And I agree with him that the main issue is pragmatism. Listen to what John MacArthur says about pragmatism. He says, basically, it's a philosophy that says that results determine meaning, truth, and value. What will work becomes a more important question than what is true. As Christians, we're called to trust what the Lord says— Preach that message to others and leave the results to him. But many have set that aside. Seeking relevancy and success, they've welcomed the pragmatic approach and have received the proverbial Trojan horse. It's a great definition of pragmatism. What works, being relevant, what garners results is the most important. Not preaching the truth, holding to the truth. And he says, when you embrace a pragmatic approach, you receive the proverbial Trojan horse. Pragmatism is the Trojan horse that has been launched into the SBC. We're infected with it. We want to look good in front of the world. We want to widen the tent to have better results. We don't want to offend Saddleback Church because look at all the things that they've done, quote-unquote, for the kingdom. We don't want to be real clear on our issues related to LGBTQ because we don't want to offend those law firms or people that we're a part of. And so there's there's pragmatism that runs the gamut all the way through the Southern Baptist Convention. Now here's the issue. What's next? What do we do next? I don't really know. We're going to have to meet together as a church to find out Um, I talked to some members uh, this past Sunday that asked me how it went and um, you know pretty much I think most of our members pretty much want to cut ties and just move on and so the question that we have to have is can we in good conscience continue to send our money to entities that we're not sure are using them to do what the Bible teaches I predict Maybe not this year, but if the trend continues, that about twenty to twenty-five percent of the churches that are like minded like us are either gonna cut cords all together or gonna slowly or maybe quickly stop giving to the cooperative program. And once you have twenty five percent of conservative strong biblical churches cutting ties those churches have served as an anchor to keep the convention moored to biblical truth. Once you cut that anchor, then the drift is no longer a drift. It is a precipitous fall downward into liberalism. Right now, I think you have enough churches holding the mooring, holding the foundation. But once those churches start leaving, then all you're going to have left are the more progressive churches, and then it's going to be easier to move down that path. And so as a church, we're going to spend some time in prayer and probably maybe even fasting to determine what our next steps are. We are not beholden to a denomination. God can do his work without the Southern Baptist Convention. God has placed us in a position to be able to steward his money the best way we see fit, and so we need to pray about what that looks like for us as a church. And so I would encourage you, if you're a listener and you are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, you're a pastor, prayerfully consider what your next steps are going to be. Listen to your church members, spend time in prayer. The main issue is that you can get so caught up in what's going on at the SBC national level and you can follow Twitter and you can, you can look at all of the, the stuff that's wrong and it takes your focus on the most important thing, which is your local church. Your local church. My responsibility is to shepherd and pastor and lead and love Emmanuel Baptist Church and the people that God has entrusted us here as elders, and to proclaim the truth faithfully week in and week out, and to make disciples. And so if that means that we don't participate in doing that with the SBC, then that may be where God leads us. But we want to do, first and foremost, what is going to bring the most glory to God and be the most faithful to his scripture. Not whether or not the world is watching not widen the tent to let anybody come in, not what brings the best results, not to be driven by pragmatism, but to be driven by what brings the most glory to God and what's the most faithful to his scripture. So those are my reflections on the SBC 2022 Anaheim. It was a good time for me to visit my son. My son lives out there. He's a graduate student at California Baptist University, and I was able to spend a couple of nights with him. And that was a wonderful time. And then I got to reconnect with some pastor friends and, and for a time of encouragement. So the fellowship was great. Um, but the events that happened related to the convention business were concerning. So please be in prayer for the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you for listening. May you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.